Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This one from a writer named Zane Gray, who is best known for his Western fiction, written at a time when the old American West was a quickly fading memory, but one that many people still appreciated and enjoyed. Enough so that his 88 books, mostly Westerns, spawned 111 movies and have sold over 100 million copies to date. Zane Gray wrote quite a bit about the outdoors as well and became known as an expert on fishing, camping, and his favorite pastime, baseball, which he played in the minor leagues. And his skill at which got him into the University of Pennsylvania on a scholarship where he studied to become a dentist. Gray had to earn his scholarship and was a good ball player who was a solid hitter and an excellent pitcher who relied on a sharply dropping curveball. When the distance from the pitcher's mound to the plate was lengthened by 10 feet in 1894, primarily to reduce the dominance of Cy Young's pitching, the effectiveness of Gray's pitching suffered. He was repositioned to the outfield, but the short, wiry Gray remained a campus hero on the strength of his timely hitting. During the summers, Gray played minor league baseball with several teams, including the Newark, New Jersey Colts in 1898, and also with the Orange Athletic Club for several years, one of the best clubs in the country at that time. After graduating in 1896, Gray set up a dental business in New York City, but also stayed with baseball to break the tedium of his business. He also began to write stories. He self-published his first book, seeing very little return on that, but persevered and tried three more until he finally had a small success, now at age 37, with The Shortstop, from which today's story is taken. All his major successes would come later, with his best-known book, Writers of the Purple Sage, coming in 1911. As Zane Gray put it, I wanted to write a story for boys and girls who loved the great American game. Chapter 13, The Sunday Game, from the shortstop, tells a good story. It provides a peephole into the past, an engaging view of ordinary Americans at work and play. It presents moral dilemmas that are as relevant today as they were at the turn of the century, in this case, playing on Sundays. And, as in the case of so many classic stories, this one was written by a person who lived baseball and loved it. The idea to include Chapter 13 from the shortstop was brought to us in the form of a review at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, written by another dentist who loves baseball, and this is how it reads. Suggestion for a reading. Rating, five stars. Love your stuff. Thought I'd make a suggestion for a story. Zane Gray, noted for westerns, wrote on other subjects as well. The ones I enjoyed the most were on baseball. In his book, The Shortstop, in the chapter titled Sunday Baseball, it gives an inspirational account and narration of why as Americans we love the game of baseball. Excellent topic for your show. P.S. I discovered that not only was he a prolific writer, he had played baseball in college wrote children's books and books about fishing, evidently an avid outdoorsman taking trips that lasted months. But he was a dentist. No wonder I liked him. Gerald G. Gell, DDS. Thanks, Gerald. It goes without saying that we love reviews at all three of our shows. And now, Sunday Baseball by Zane Gray.
Say, sure, I got something to tell you Indians that I ain't stuck on, said Mac. The directors have decided to play Sunday ball. The boys could not have made a more passionate and angry outbreak if they had heard they were to be hanged. Beef, beef, shouted Mac, red as a lobster. Haven't I been again it? You puff in front of the hotel stiffs, talk as if I was to blame. What? roared Castorius. Give me my release, cried Benny, who had recently taken to attending a certain church. Benny never did anything by halves. The dude flung his bat through a window, carrying away glass and sash. All except Chase were violent in word and action, and he was too greatly surprised to move or speak. Mac's position often assumed exasperating phases. This was one of them. He tried reason on the most choleric of his players with about as much success as if they had been brass mules. They persisted in venting their spleen on him. Then he lost his temper. Flannel mouths, have you all swallowed red-hot bricks? Cheese it now, cheese it. The guy that doesn't report here Sunday gets let down and fine besides. Got that? Chase left the grounds in some distress of mind. The past four weeks had been so perfect that he had forgotten things could go wrong. Sunday ball. It had never even occurred to him. To give up his place on the team and all the bright promise of the future, he wouldn't consider that for a moment. He would have to reconcile himself to the inevitable. But what would his mother say? He might keep it from her. He didn't need to tell her. She would never find it out. No, the temptation lasted only a moment. He would not deceive her. And then a further consideration weighed upon him. If he played baseball on the Sabbath in order to attain a future success, would that success be an honest one? He was afraid it would not. He had been trained to respect the Sabbath. If he kept faith with his training, he must confess Sunday games were wrong. Nevertheless, he could not harbor the idea of resigning his place. This made him feel he was willfully doing wrong, and he plunged into bitterness of spirit. It was with no little curiosity that Chase went out upon the field on Sunday. The grandstand looked as usual. Many familiar faces were there. The bleachers were packed, and a line of men and boys, 20 deep, extended along to the right and left of the diamond. Chase had never seen such a crowd in the grounds, nor had he ever seen such enthusiasm. All at once it occurred to him that here were hundreds and thousands of boys and men who worked every hour of daylight, six days every week. They were new to him, and he saw that he was as new to them. They had never seen him play. They had never before had a chance to see a ball game in Findlay. A question came naturally to Chase's quick mind. Had they played the game when mere tots on the commons and learned to love it, as had he? A blind man would have answered in the affirmative. They were wild and bubbling over from sheer joy. If they loved the game and had only one day to go, albeit that day was Sunday, were they doing harm? Chase could not answer that but he knew whatever it was for them applied also to him. Finlay, Ohio won the first Sunday game. A greater and noisier crowd had never before been in attendance. Noise! The field was a howling bedlam. The boys ran like unleashed colts. The men cheered their own players, roared at their opponents, and at each other. In his heart, Chase was trying desperately hard to justify his own part in it, and because of that, he saw much and found food for reflection. Well, he knew the pallor of these boys. It came from the dark, sunless foundries. The hundreds of men present had a yellowish, oily look, 
They were the diggers and refiners, the laborers from the oil fields. At first Chase thought their unbridled mirth, their coarse jests at the umpire, at the players, and themselves, their unremitting wild, hoarse yells, as unnatural as strident. Then suddenly a smile here, a laugh of delight there, told him all this was only natural. These men and boys had found expression for their pent-up feelings, for a short delight in contrast to the long day. This was their hour of freedom. Yell, that's right, yell, muttered Chase through his teeth as he went up to bat. He felt for them, but could not quite understand. He drove one of his famous liners against the fence. Yell for that, he said to himself. A long, screeching, swelling howl of rapture rose from the field and the stands. It rang in Chase's ears as he sped round the bases. And when, after sliding into third, he stood up, he saw a sight he never forgot. The crowd was one leaping, tossing, waving, crazy mass. With Chase, to get the track of anything was to trail it to the end. The faces and actions of that crowd made him think. Their frenzied glee made him sad because it reminded him of his old longing for freedom, and its very violence bespoke the bottled-up love of play. These men and boys wanted to play, and circumstances had made it so they could not. They loved to play, as they had mothers, sisters, brothers, children to support. They had no time to play. As the next best thing, they loved to see someone else play, and they had only one day, Sunday. It's this way, said Chase to himself. If these men and boys spend their Sundays at home and in church, then Sunday ball is wrong. If they spend it otherwise, then Sunday ball is not wrong. Chase was tenacious and stubborn. He found he had loved the game as a boy because of the play in it. Now he loved it because of what it was doing for him, because he believed in it, and he set himself to find out what it might be doing for others. He could not write to his mother till he had decided the question, so he spent much of his leisure time going the rounds of the foundries, factories, refineries, brickyards. And he took care to drop into all the saloons, the beer gardens, and the dance halls. Everywhere he was known and welcomed. He asked questions, he listened, and he watched. When another Sunday had passed, he was in possession of all he needed to know. With immeasurable relief, he decided that, while he would rather not have played Sunday ball, it was not wrong for him to do so. He even decided he was doing good. Thus he settled the perplexing question forever in his own conscience. He would tell his mother how he had arrived at his conclusion, and as for others, it did not matter what they thought. All this time, Chase had not been blind to certain indications of coolness on the part of people who had hitherto been pleased to be courteous and affable. And as these indications had come solely from chance meetings in the streets, he began to wonder how much deeper this coldness would go, provided he sought the society of these persons. That thought alone kept him away from Marjorie for over a week. He believed she would understand and still be his friend. But instinctively, he feared her mother, and he had a momentary twinge when he called to mind the young minister so welcome in the Dean household. One evening when a party of ladies coolly snubbed him, Chase could stand the suspense no longer. So he presented himself at Marjorie's home, and much to his relief, found her on the porch alone. Chase, Mom has forbidden me to see you, 
she said, with her blue eyes on him. Chase gulped when he saw the eyes were unchanged, still warm and bright. No? Oh, Marjorie, it's not so bad as that. Yes, but Chase, you just give up the Sunday games and then everything will be all right again. I can't do that. Why not? Let them play without you. It's no use, Marjorie. Either I play on Sundays or give up the game. And it means a good deal to me. Does your mother say it is wrong? She says it's awful, and Mr. Marsden held up his hand in holy horror when he heard it. He's going to work against it, to stop it. Do you think it's so terribly wrong? Oh, Chase, for you to ask me that, don't you know it? No, I don't, replied Chase stubbornly. Then you won't give it up? No. Not, not even to please me? I would if I could, but I can't. Marjorie, please. Then goodbye. Oh, cried Chase sharply. He looked at her. The long lashes were down. You said that, you said that as if I were. Look here, Marjorie Dean. I'm working for my mother. I've seen her faint when she came home at night. I've seen her hands bleed. If every day were Sunday and baseball bad, which it's not, I'd still play. What do I care for Mr. Marsden? He's so dry he rattles like a beanstalk. I don't care what your mother thinks. She's, I don't care. I don't care what you think either. Goodbye. He strode off the porch. A low and tremulous chase did not halt him. He was bitterly hurt, angry, and sick. He went to his room, fought out his bad hour alone in the dark, and then came forth feeling himself older and resigned. But he was more determined than ever to stand by the game. Sunday another great throng yelled itself hoarse at the grounds and went home in shirt sleeves, sweaty, tired, and happy. Chase dressed, went to dinner, and then strolled round to the hotel. All the boys were there lounging in familiar groups. He thought they all seemed rather quiet and looked queerly at him. Before he could learn what was in the air, a policeman whom he knew well stepped up reluctantly. Chase, I've got a warrant for you. The blood round Chase's heart seemed to freeze. He stared, unable to speak. My partner's gone to arrest Mac, continued the officer. Here's the warrant. The printed words blurred in Chase's sight, but his own name and writing, and the term Sunday Baseball, and the Reverend Mr. Marsden's name, told him the meaning of the arrest. I'm sorry, Chase. I hate to run you in, but I've my duty, said the officer, and whispered lower. We'll try to get word to Mayor Duff so you can get bail and not be locked up. Bail? Locked up? echoed Chase stupidly. Mac appeared with another officer. The little manager was pale but composed. Sure, we're pinched, Chase, he said, and as the players crowded round, he continued. Fade away now, or you'll put people wise. Somebody hunt up King and Beekman and send them to the station. Cass, you dig for Mayor Duff's house and ask him to come and take bail for us. Lord, I hope he's home. If not, the law puts us in a cell tonight. Sure, somebody has done us dirt. Them warrants might have been made out for tomorrow. Mac, you and Chase walk round to the station alone, said one of the officers. We'll go another way. Come on, Chase, don't look so peaked. Isn't the whole team arrested? queried Chase. Sure, and the whole team will be on trial. 
but the warrants read for manager and one player. It had been more regular to have pinched Enoch, as he's captain. Don't know why they picked on you. Is playing Sunday against the law? No, not any more than driving a team. But these moss-backed people twist things and call us nuisances and immoral, and Lord knows what. Here we are at the station. It's pretty tough on you, kid, but don't quit. This won't hurt you any. The two officers met them, unlocked the station house doors, and ushered them into the mayor's office. Presently, Beekman strode in, big and important, and said it was not necessary to call in King, for he would go bail for both. If Duff's in town, he'll come, continued Beekman. Presently, the sounds of a fast-trotting horse and flying wheels drew an officer to the window. The mayor's here, he said. Max settled back with a deep breath. Good, he exclaimed. A tall man with a gray beard came in hurriedly, followed by Castorius. He nodded to all, threw his gloves on the desk, and took the warrants held out to him. In a few moments, he had made the necessary recording of the arrest and of accepted bail. Then he shook hands with Mac and Chase. Glad I happened to run across Castorius. Was driving out into the country. You'll get your hearing tomorrow morning, and if you wish, I'll set the trial for Wednesday or Thursday morning. The sooner the better, replied Mac. Then the mayor bowed pleasantly and left. Chase followed the others out. He could scarcely realize that he had been arrested. And leaving his friends in earnest conversation, he went to his room and to bed. He did not have a very restful night. The morning papers were full of the particulars of the arrest and the consideration of Sunday ball, and the subject was the absorbing topic of conversation everywhere. All the directors of the team were present at the hearing and afterwards repaired to Judge Meg's office to discuss the matter of defense. Meggs was a shrewd old lawyer and incidentally an admirer of the game of baseball. While in office, he had been known to adjourn court because he wanted to see Finley wallop their rivals. Therefore, it was felt that with the case in his hands, the team would escape imprisonment and fine even if Sunday ball were discontinued. Beekman and King had visited practically all the men of business in Finley and stating their case that the Sunday game was conducted in an orderly manner, that no drinks were sold at or near the grounds, that it was played at the earnest request of thousands of working men and boys, and had gotten a long list of signatures to their petition favoring the game. During the discussion as to the defense, one of the directors had mentioned the fact that certain members of the laboring class were better off in summer for the playing of the game. Can we prove that? asked Judge Meggs. I know it's true, spoke up Chase. How do you know? returned the lawyer. Somewhat incoherently, but with the eager earnestness of conviction, Chase told what he knew. Then the judge questioned him in regard to his motive, drew him out to tell what baseball meant to him and to others like him, with the result that he presently said to the directors, Gentlemen, we have our defense, and you may take my word for it. We shall win. He asked Chase to call at his office an hour before the time fixed upon for the trial the next day. Finlay lost the ball game that afternoon. They played listlessly and plainly showed the effects of the cloud hanging over them. On Wednesday, Chase went to Judge Meg's office at the appointed time. Now, Chase, if you're a star of the diamond, you ought to shine just as brightly in the courtroom. 
This morning when I call on you, I want you to get up and tell the court what you told me about yourself and baseball. Be simple, earnest, and straightforward. You have here the opportunity to vindicate yourself and your fellow players, so make the best of it. Chase went to the courtroom with the judge. It was crowded with people. The Finlay team and the team visiting town at that time occupied the front seats. All the directors and many businessmen were present. There was a plentiful sprinkling of ladies in the background. Mayor Duff opened proceedings as soon as the judge arrived with Chase. The prosecuting minister did not appear. His representative, a young lawyer, rose and expatiated on the evils of the Finlay team in general and of Sunday ball in particular. These young men set bad examples, engendered idleness and love of play. They were opposed to work. They enticed boys from school to see a useless and sometimes dangerous sport. They fostered the spirit of rivalry and of gambling. Baseball on Sunday was an abomination. It was a desecration of the Sabbath. It added to the undermining of the church. It opposed the teachings of the Bible. It kept the boys and girls from Sunday school. Sunday was a day of rest, of prayer, of quiet communion, not a day for playing, howling, yelling, mobbing, carousing. The permitting of the game was a disgrace to the decent name of Finley, a shame to her respectable citizens, and a sin to her churches. The prosecution examined witnesses who swore to endless streams of passing men on the streets, of yelling that made the afternoon a hideous nightmare, of brawls on corners and mob violence in the ball grounds, of hoodlums accosting women, and there the prosecution rested. Judge Meggs read the petition and names of the men who had signed it, and he said there could be little doubt of the great benefit Finley had derived in a business way from the advertising given to it by the baseball team. Your Honor, he concluded impressively, I will now have one of the defendants tell his experience of baseball. At a word from Judge Meggs, Chase stepped forward. His face was white, his eyes dark from excitement, but he appeared entirely self-possessed. Your Honor, I am 18 years old and have played baseball as long as I can remember. I learned in the streets and on the lots of Akron. When 12 years old, I left school and work to support my mother and a crippled brother. I sold papers, did odd jobs, anything that offered. I had a crooked eye then, and it was hard for me to get a place. People didn't like my looks. At 14, I went to work in the molding department of a factory. I studied at night to try to get some education. When I'd been there a year, I earned $5 a week. After four years, I was earning $6. I did not advance fast. Last summer, I played ball on the factory team. This spring, I decided to be a ball player. My mother opposed me, but I persuaded her. I started out to find a place on a team. My crooked eye was against chances of success. I became a tramp and beat my way from town to town. I starved, but I hung on. One morning I awoke in a fence corner in the town of Finley. I hunted up the ball grounds and the manager. He didn't see my ragged clothes or my crooked eye. He gave me a chance. I played a wretched game. I expected to be thrown from the grounds. He gave me money, said he would keep me, would teach me the game. I tried hard, 
and I made good. I've been very happy here in Finley. I never knew what friends meant. Everybody's been kind to me. I have dreamed of one day being a businessman here. But best for me was what I could do for my mother and brother. She does not take in washing anymore or sew herself blind late into the nights. My brother has had treatment for his hip. He has the books he needed and he'll get the education he longs for. When I learned that we were to play Sunday ball, I was stunned. I never thought of that. My mother gave me Christian teaching and I kept the Sabbath day. I was sick with doubt. I felt that I was going to do wrong. I concluded that it would be wrong, but I had no mind to sacrifice my place on the team. That had been too dearly bought. It meant too much to me. My mother had to be told, and there lay the reason of my seeking for some excuse. It came to me in the first Sunday game. There were 500 men and boys who had never attended one of our games. No one ever saw a wilder crowd. It was as if they'd been let out of an asylum. They were crazy, but it was with happiness. They screamed like Indians, but it was for freedom. I saw men smash their hats, boys throw their coats, and both yell with tears in their eyes. Why? Your Honor, I'll tell you why. I know what it means to work from daylight to night, year in, year out, with no chance, no hope for the natural play every man, and especially every boy, loves. It is very easy for ministers and teachers to tell us working men how to spend the one free day. And no doubt they mean well, but they miss the point. On Sunday, those shrieking, boisterous diggers, cappers, puddlers, refiners had gone back to their boyhood. They played the game for us with their hearts, their throats, and their tears. The night after that game, I had a change of feeling. I began to think, perhaps after all, it was not so bad for me to play ball on Sunday. I began to see things I had never seen before. If I could satisfy myself that the hundreds of men and boys were better off at a Sunday game than elsewhere, then I was justified in playing for their amusement. So I began to go around and ask questions. At first this searching for the truth was because of what I must tell my mother. Afterwards the thing itself interested me. I went to foundries and factories to the big refineries, to the brickyards, everywhere. And I found everybody knew me. Everybody had a word for me. Everybody's eyes shone at the mention of the next Sunday game. I talked to little boys and girls carrying dinner to their fathers. And I went home with them and talked to their mothers. One and all, these mothers welcomed the game. I visited the saloons and the beer gardens, the roadhouses and the dance halls. I found them bitterly opposed to Sunday ball. Their Sunday business was ruined. Two big gardens closed up after the second Sunday. I had seen some of these places went in full blast on a busy Sunday. The beer ran in streams and the air reeked. It seems to me those who make the laws would learn something if they would become mere hard-working men. When their eyes burned in their heads and their backs ached and they never saw the sky and grew dull and weary, they would see differently. They wouldn't ask any man to sit in church and be told how to be good and happy. A man or a boy penned up all the week needs some kind of a fling. Your Honor, I wrote my mother that I was not doing wrong when I played Sunday ball. I'm not ashamed of it. We players are not a disgrace to Finley. 
Chase sat down. Judge Miggs stroked his chin and watched his honor while the crowd roared their applause. Finally, Mayor Duff rapped on his desk. I am sitting in judgment on this case as Mayor of Finley, as a deacon of the church bringing the action, and as a director of the Finley Baseball Association. I'm rather submerged in the deep sea between the two sides. But I'm happy to say that as mayor, church member, and director, I have solved the problem. I do not want to go on record as a green entirely with Alloway. Still, so far as he is concerned, I uphold him. More than that, he's given us something to think about. I have long had my eye on those halls and gardens he spoke of, and now they shall be closed on Sundays. During the last few days, I've visited every prominent business concern in Finley, and I've laid before each of these our baseball situation. In substance, I said I would permit Sunday ball unless they gave their employees a half holiday on Saturdays. I have spoken of Finley's prosperity and that no small factor in the activity of business for the last few years has been the advertisement of our crack baseball team. I have gone to the different leaders of the churches and of society, and I've solicited their cooperation, assuring them if they would join forces with me for the good of Finley and the laboring classes and the baseball people, there need be no Sunday ball. I'm happy to say that I've been entirely successful. There will be no Sunday ball. There will be no open shops or factories or mills on Saturday afternoons. We, all of us, working people, church people, everybody concerned, will profit by this. How much better it is for the baseball team to have the undivided support of Finley. That is what it will now have. Finley is proud of its baseball team and is proud of some other things. Its prosperity, its good name, its old-fashioned institutions. We want still to have the quiet, serene Sundays our fathers and mothers had. I think it is to the credit of Finley that we can meet this question and settle it to everybody's satisfaction. I am sure the matter has been wholesome for us as a city and as individuals. So I'm happy to dismiss the case, assuring the prosecution and the defense that they both have won and that their victory is in every way in advance a betterment for the Commonwealth of Finley. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. What a terrific story. We hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. <laughs> as we all know, later on, those sacred Sundays did fall to sports and business. But that's the way of life. I'd like to turn your attention for just a moment to our newest show, 1001 Stories for the Road. We hope you take a moment to download 1001 Stories for the Road on your Apple or Android apps as we've moved on to a long classic stories format there. And we're telling the great adventure stories one chapter at a time, beginning with Jack London's The Call of the Wild, which, by the time you're hearing this, is probably in its fourth or fifth episode. Like many of you, I read the story when I was younger, but it seems new to me as I retell it here. It's the difference you feel driving past a meadow versus walking past a meadow. You notice many more details when you come back to it, take your time, and listen to the retelling. One of these days, 
I'll be taking that Alaskan cruise so many friends have told me about, and I'll be picturing the magnificent backdrop for this timeless saga in person. But for now, and with Jack London's soaring descriptions, I'll use my imagination. Meanwhile, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. (laughs) 